everything else is silly putty. Even at the zoo, you can roll it round and bounce it. You can press it on your favorite color comic and stretch your fun. Make faces with faces. Nothing else is silly putty. It's great. Have fun lifting pictures. With silly putty, it's easy. Anybody can do it. And you can do it over and over. In fact, you might even pick up a new friend with silly putty. Remember, nothing else is silly putty. And you can get it at any silly putty store. Is your life absurd? What an odd question you might respond. Maybe you find it even, that's right, absurd. But is it? Do you ever find your life absurd? Now, philosophers, notably Albert Camus, had a particular view of absurdity. He looked at it as the conflict between our human tendency to look for inherent value and meaning in our lives and the human inability to really find any meaning in it at all. In other words, it literally is the tension in our desire to seek the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, and our ability or inability to answer it during our lifetime. Okay, I'm just here for the podcast you're saying right now. Why are we going this deep? Didn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tell us that the meaning of life is simply 42? Well, yeah, and there are, of course, less serious aspects of absurdity as well. There's the absurd incongruous, you know, like breading cats, where people take photos of their cats with bread around their heads. Don't believe me? Google it. It's a thing. Then there's the absurd of unsettled, unexpected results to which we want to give some higher power or reason. That's what the famous Alanis Morissette song should have been titled, although, yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Because, of course, rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you've already paid or the good advice you just didn't take, that's not ironic. That's just unexpected results. It's absurd. In our business life, maybe nothing explains the absurdity of what we pay attention to more than the wonderful scene from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. The American Corporation has on it the agenda, the meaning of life, in their board meeting. Which brings us once again to the urgent realization of just how much there is still left to own. Item six on the agenda, the meaning of life. Now, uh, Harry, you've had some thoughts on this. That's right, yeah. I've had a team working on this over the past few weeks, and uh, what we've come up with can be reduced to two fundamental concepts. One, people are not wearing enough hats. Two, matter is energy. In the universe, there are many energy fields which we cannot normally perceive. Some energies have a spiritual source which act upon a person's soul. However... This soul does not exist ab initio, as orthodox Christianity teaches. It has to be brought into existence by a process of guided self-observation. However, this is rarely achieved owing to man's unique ability to be distracted from spiritual matters by everyday trivia. What was that about hats again? Oh, uh, people aren't wearing enough. Is this true? 
Certainly. The hat sales have increased, but not Perry Pursuers. Our research initiative. Enough, enough for what purpose? You see, life can be absurd. Sometimes great strategies lose. Sometimes great projects run by great, wonderful, talented people fail or have the plug pulled unexpectedly. Sometimes the best team loses. Sometimes the nice guys do finish last. Sometimes the bad guy does win. Sometimes the completely wrong, untalented, mean, and ridiculous person is hired to be our boss. Sometimes there is no why. So it seems pretty clear we can have absurdity in our lives, but it's not because we haven't found some grand purpose for our life. What's the answer then? Well, the answer is exploration. And that's the theme of our show today. Finding meaning and being happy with the looking, looking for meaning and being happy with not finding it, or quite frankly, not worrying about any of it at all. And now it's time for me to think. Therefore, I am. Let's get our little hour of philosophy underway, shall we? We'll ask all the hard questions like, is the answer to this question no? Or is anyone really ever here? Or is it solipsistic in here? Or is it just me? So now let's get to our show. You know, the one where as you listen, you know less and less about more and more, and by the end, you know nothing about everything. Remember, we only have one rule. That's to ignore all the rules. So you ready to follow the rule? Well, then let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 187 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, June 11th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy who found the true meaning of the content marketing life, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? <laughs> Was that like thug life, but for yeah, marketers? No, it's the true meaning. It's, uh, it's it, well, you know, you the do North have the star well, yeah. of marketing. There is the anniversary of Annie, the musical, going on right now. So it's a hard knock life, I life. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically the story of Joe Polizzi. It's uh, <laughs> except that it's the opposite, <laughs> right? That's right. Yes, I as I used to say, I you know, so I grew up in uh, Dallas, of course, and and of course I grew up in the sub. I was a suburbs kid, and I grew up in Irving, and I used to say, yeah, I grew up in the streets, the mean streets of Irving, Texas. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> Yeah, it was the it was the same for me. It was the it was the tough uh, streets and outlets of Sandusky, Ohio. There it is. Well, Which, you know, I mean, that's got a little street cred. Sandusky's got a little street cred to it. It oh, more yeah, than yeah, Irving, Texas does. Let me tell you that. Well, it's yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's most people. Not, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but probably was about a hundred episodes ago. But that's where Tommy Boy the movie. That's, That's where right. they're located, Sandusky, right. Ohio. Callahan Auto. There it is. Which is which really does not exist, but should. It should exist. It should exist in Cleveland, Ohio, or in uh, Sandusky, Ohio. But they're known for Tommy Boy and then, of course, Cedar Point Amusement Park. Yes. Where everyone in my family, my grandma, my grandpa, my all the way, I worked at Cedar Point, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get my, get my kids who live in Cleveland now to work at Cedar Point. <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet, but... 
Absolutely. It might skip a generation. <laughs> Something like that. I'll tell you what, it's hot today here. In, is in it Cleveland, Ohio? It is going to be ninety-three degrees. Oh my gosh! Today. It's going to be seventy-one degrees here in lovely Southern California today. So. Really? Yeah. It's so weird. This is uh, this non-global warming stuff. It's just that's right. Weird. That's right. That's right. So anyway, but the good news is what is, the is good that news? well, the good news is that this is the first episode where we have central air. In the house, and I'm not sweating like crazy. <laughs> it's a big deal. I mean, do you know how many episodes that I mean, like, I'm like, I'm like, Robert, I'm dying here. I can't. It's like 100 degrees in this box that I'm recording in. People don't appreciate how much you sweat for your art. They, they, they really don't. I have, I have shirts, mementos, shirts that I can't wear again. <laughs> but we're not going to get it. Let's just, let's just stop right there. Nobody wants to hear that. They're, they've been wookified. They're wookie. <laughs> Uh, so maybe we should uh, just kick it off with our episode sponsor here. We should. That? Absolutely, we should talk because they have been such a kind sponsor to I us know, for a few episodes wonderful. now. Yeah, it's a, our, our wonderful new sponsor, Video Blocks. If you're not familiar with them, they're an affordable subscription-based stock media site that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. Uh, video Blocks has one of the fastest-growing and largest stock video libraries with over 3 million videos. And then they've got uh, After Effect templates and motion backgrounds and all that good stuff. And by the way, when you download something, the downloads are yours forever, even after your trial ends, and are 100% royalty-free. Um, their sister site, Audioblocks, has 100,000-plus library music tracks, sound effects, and loops to complement your videos. And this is the deal for PNR subscribers. You can get Video Blocks two-for-one deal. So if you subscribe to Video Blocks for $149, you get Audio Blocks for free just when you sign up. Isn't that something? That's like, a, that's that's awesome. like a, They call that the old two-for-one deal. And that's a $100 discount off the regular price tag, and that's for PNR listeners only. You need to go to cmi.media slash PNR187B. That's cmi.media slash PNR187B to get that two-for-one offer on unlimited downloads of both video and audio clips from our friends at Videoblocks and Audioblocks, cmi.media slash PNR187B. Fantastic. I guess you could say if you have writer's block... You could check out the new kid on the block of content, which would be video blocks. Thanks for listening, that. folks. That was <laughs> yeah. uh, thank, the shortest episode ever, but I think that that's enough. <laughs> Mike has any? been summarily dropped. Oh, yes, we God. do have news. Let's Did get to news? it before we continue we to good, embarrass we have some ourselves. Good stories this week. I we do actually have some really good stories this week. Some really fun stuff. Most to talk of the time, about we here. have horrible stories that we try to make interesting. <laughs> This, in this case, they're actually some good stuff. They're actually fairly interesting. Yeah. Okay, our first top of the show story comes to us courtesy of theintercept.com. Um, and this is a, a story that a few folks sent in um, via the hashtag. And the headline is here, be careful celebrating Google's new ad blocker. Here's what's really going on. The article opens up by saying, Google, a data mining and extraction company that sells personal information to advertisers, but the article doesn't have an agenda. Don't listen to anything like that, um, <laughs> has hit upon a neat idea to consolidate its already dominant business, block competitors from appearing on its platforms. The company announced that it would establish an ad blocker for the Chrome web browser, which has become the most popular in America, employed by nearly half of the nation's web users. 
the ad blocker, which is Google's calling a filter, would roll out next year and would be the default setting for Chrome when fully functional. In other words, the normal user sparking up their Chrome browser simply wouldn't see the ads blocked by the system. What ads would get blocked? The ones not sold by Google for the most part. Um, so, and the article then goes on to summarily continue to complain about this. Um, what did you think about this article? Do you think this, I mean, we talked a little about this when the news actually came out and talked a little bit about it, but this seems to be taking a definitive point of view that Google is really going to, you know, um, try to monopolize their ability to uh, get content in front of users. What, do, do you agree? Do you yeah, think we talk, Well, we talked about it quite in depth uh, yeah. multiple occasions. And of course, when the, when the news came out the last time we talked about it, but of course, listeners to this wonderful broadcast know that, uh, you know, if you're, if you should not be duped by this, and this might even be non-news because you know that this has been the plan all along. We've been talking about it. It's a well-hatched plan that Google's had uh, that to you know give this wonderful Chrome product away so they get more people using it, very similar to what Facebook has been trying to do as well. And you get more and more people using, in this case, Chrome, so that if you want to be in the game, in the ad game, you really need to use Google's services so that your ad gets shown or could do what we talk about a lot is build your own wonderful platform so that you don't have to worry about buying advertising and all that other stuff and you can sort of you know, be outside the system but i it's a beautiful plan i mean it's i don't think it's i think if you've been following the news robert i don't know if you, if you have the same take but this should not be a surprise this should be oh yeah this has been google's plan all along this is not new and you know it's just more of what we were expecting that's my take on it. I don't know what your take is. <laughs> <laughs> you say that like you don't even care. I do care. I do care. Yeah, I'm listening. I got my I, you listening know, look, ears on. I think, uh, you know, the, the article goes on to describe how that Google is simultaneously, and we also talked about this on the show before, starting this idea of creating a standards based for advertising. Um, and they're calling it the Coalition for Better Ads, which is theoretically a third-party group. But, um, you know, Google and Facebook are the two big kids uh, within the Coalition of Better Ads. Is it really a third? Yeah, like, is it? Uh, no, really? it's not really a third party. It's, yes. you know, but but it's, you know, well, but like any of the large advertising and or marketing-based associations are not third parties, right? I mean, the ANA is not a third party, truly. It's, it's a conglomeration of advertisers that have an agenda. That's the whole point of creating in a group is that you've got a group that you're getting together under a like-minded goal and you're, you know, you're associating with one another as it were. But I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I see the plan. I, you know, it, it seems too obvious to me, I guess. In other words, I, I, I get it. I just don't see Google going there. I, I guess that's my, my point is it it would it would seem to cause so much ruckus to block every ad that they're not selling that it would be it would be it, the reaction to that would be so strong that it would actually be counterproductive i think but i don't um, think that's yes but, but i don't think that's what they're doing they're just blocking the most of the most of the ads there. Right. So that balance, I guess that balance is the interesting question in my mind, right? Where is that balance? And 
remember here, today we're talking about advertising. Tomorrow we could be talking about content, right? It, you know, there is nothing saying that they have to stop with advertising. As native advertising becomes a much more increasingly important piece here of the way that publishers and media companies monetize their digital channels, well, you know, if you're if you're the New York Times or you're a you know, uh, you know, some B2B publishing website that's making your a good piece of your new money based on having a sponsored article and you're doing everything you can to call attention to that, well, of course that means that that article will be tagged in a way that could be blocked. And so we're we're not only talking just the classic pop-up ads or banner ads or those kinds of things. Ultimately, we're talking about content here. And I just don't know that Google wants to be known to be in the business. Look, maybe they do. And then maybe we get into a whole new browser war games again, right? You know, maybe Facebook launches a browser, Google launches a browser. Maybe it gets to the point where somebody launches a browser as a startup, right? So we get back to the, remember the old days when we used to pay money for Netscape? Mm-hmm. You know, we actually used to go to the software store and buy Netscape in a box and install it and pay for it and all of that. And of course, that went away with Chrome and um, and when Microsoft, you know, and 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 all of that came along with with free browsers. I, so it, I think it's a in my mind, this is such a big question mark here that um, you know I I think it's going I think it's going to have huge impact, right? I, I think it's uh, it, it, so it's worth continuing and paying attention to, I guess. Well, to it? your point, I don't think they're doing it to be evil. I don't think this was. I mean, I think that part of the plan was they want to be a wonderfully profitable company. Yes. They want to make and, their and, platform and look as innovative as possible. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and But at the same time, by doing that, they're saying, well, we want a better user experience. So how do we do right. that? Well, let's create our own ad blocker and put it on, into Chrome. And they, they were thinking about this years ago so that That's we right. can deliver the best possible experience. But what the side effect of that is, is going to be less competition and that Google and Facebook become the arbiters of how we get our information. It's already that way. It's just going to be more that way. I mean, I don't want to – it's not like 1984 Big Brother stuff, but it is. Yeah. Well, you know what I I think – so to your point, what I think it is is the – the appearance of impropriety will be more important than the actual impropriety itself. In other words, I believe you, and I'm going to take Google at its word here for the moment and say, yes, what they're really after is a better user experience, and thus, they'll, through this coalition of better ads, they'll propose and say, look, here are the ways that we could unfilter ads, right? We can basically not block your ad. And it will just so happen that their way, which may or may not be the best way, but it will be their way is the best way, right? The, you know, so using Google's platform will be the best way to ensure that your ad isn't filtered. Now, you could read that the opposite way to say Google is the only way to get your ad unfiltered and unblocked. Or you could say if we follow the way that Google applies these standards – we can actually have, a, you know, we actually have a, a just as good a shot as as they do, and they're keeping, you know, they're keeping the internet open and free and all that stuff. So, it's going to be a very, very careful and thin line that they will balance between, you know, this is not unlike the airline saying, look, you know, is it, you know, when we when we monetize the middle seat. Is it, are we making flights cheaper by monetizing the middle seat or are we making everything else more expensive? Yeah. And, and that's what we're talking about here. Are we making it really 
um, hard to comply with standards that we already have the secret sauce to and thus making unfiltering ads really difficult? Or are we going to release this to everyone and make it better, a better user experience across advertising? And I think the, the jury's still out on that. That's a tough situation for marketers. Because it's a really like, hard one for me. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like we were having this conversation the last couple of weeks about you know should we be in the newsfeed and where you publish your content, and I think that it we're still at this point where yeah you can play by some of the rules that Google and Facebook are giving you, but you have to remember that at some point soon that access is going to be cut off, and then where are you left? I mean, that's why we come and. I, I don't want it to, it always comes back to, oh, you need to build your own platform. You need to be the leading expert. You need to have this direct relationship with your audience. We always come back to that. But I don't, mm-hmm. the reason why we come back to it is because I don't know of another way. Right. That's right. I wish there, I wish, oh, I wish I could say, you know, you could, you could live within Google, and maybe you can, right? Maybe you can live within the rules that Google and Facebook are handing us and just say, you know what, we don't have to do anything else and we'll just do the best we can at living as a part of somebody else's rules and land and whatever you want to call it. But that's just a scary place to be. Yes, it's temporal for sure. It's a very, very temporary place these days. That, you know, whatever advantage you can build up by taking advantage of a of, of a platform that has the current, you know, attention of the zeitgeist is, is boy, that's a temporary thing, right? It's like all the people who are now just killing it, quote unquote, on Snapchat, right? And, you know, it's the story we're not covering this week, but Snapchat is continuing to have more and more problems. And, and will that be a, pla- you know, is it going to continue to be a social platform? And what's going to happen to all those people who've been, quote unquote, killing it on Snapchat if Snapchat goes away, you know, who are building their businesses on Snapchat? And stock price down to $18. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just scratching my head. Well, actually, I, I think I asked, we were working with the, the CMI sales team. Uh, this was a couple months ago. And there's a particular person that has Google and Facebook as accounts and wondering why they're not sponsors of the podcast. Now, <laughs> why, why, is, why doesn't maybe, Google and Facebook want to because sponsor Because maybe they listen. Yeah, they might listen. <laughs> that would be... Sorry, Karen. Yeah. We're, you know, we have to... I gotta be me. Yeah. We just... Yeah. We're just trying to be transparent, man. Unless they're really close to being a sponsor. In that case, I'm going to put... Forget this episode brought platform. to you by Google let's and Facebook. Put it all into, let's put the it all into Google Goog. and Facebook. <laughs> Gosh, I love Alphabet. <laughs> yeah. All right, should we move episode. on to our next story? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. That's fine. All right. <laughs> um, this one, we're going to pair a couple of stories together because this was a story that sort of broke uh, last week and sort of to continue to break. Um, and uh, it's a really, really interesting one. So first of all, huge hat tip to uh, uh, Carmen Hill, um, friend and family of the show for sure, at Carmen Hill on Twitter, and Brooke Ness, um, at Brooke D. Ness on Twitter for passing this over via the hashtag, um, and uh, especially to Carmen who passed it over via the email address. Thank you for that. So the headline here is Craft Brewers Question Whether Anheuser-Busch's Foray into Publishing uh, is Fair or Not. So the first story that we're going to link to here in the show notes comes from bizjournals.com. 
And uh, it, um, it 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 shows a story about this craft brewery and uh, and and good uh, craft brewing communities. Uh, the article opens up by saying bar stools aren't the only place beer lovers convene anymore. Craft brewing communities have popped up online in the form of blogs and beer rating sites. But some beer industry insiders have expressed concern after Good Beer Hunting revealed last week that Anheuser Busch InBev has invested in the highly popular user generated rating site. Rate Beer, as well as several other online beer publications. Um, ABI, which is the uh, uh, the, the site in question, uh, Anheuser-Busch, closed a deal with Rate Beer in October via its venture capital unit, ZX Ventures, to become a minority stakeholder in the site. And though Rate Beer Executive Director Joe Tucker said that the site will retain its operational independence and its value as an unbiased beer authority in a post on the site last week, smaller Oregon craft brewers are unsure just how this investment might affect the local industry. And before I get to uh, our takes on this, let me just get to the follow-up here because Harpoon, which is one of the smaller breweries here, um, then sort of sent out their message, um, and it's an article that we'll link to in streetwise.co, and it says, after years of snapping up select craft breweries across the country, the world's largest beer company has executed its first web purchase. Not surprisingly, the craft community is up in arms. Good Beer Hunting broke the story last week, that's what I just told you about, and the hands of local writer Dave Eisenberg that Anheuser-Busch has acquired a minority stake in the popular beer rating site Rate Beer, a deal that's actually been cemented since October, but was kept under wraps so that each side could quietly put quote-unquote points on the board and prove the partnership. And Harpoon then goes on to talk, or the article then goes on to talk about how the uh, Harpoon folks uh, said basically you should just take our reviews off the site. And then others um, did the same thing. Other craft brewers have said, basically, you could take our reviews off the website because we're shocked and dismayed that basically you that Anheuser-Busch has bought this uh, particular thing. Did you, now, I definitely have a take on this, Joe, and I wanted to get your take on it as well. Did you have a did you have a thought on this? I'm shocked. I'm <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I do have right. a take. Uh, first of all, thanks to James Gardner for sending in that second one. Yes. And oh, then, yes. I'm sorry. Yep. I missed okay. James there. That's okay. Yep. But but I, as we talked about, I would like to to uh, relinquish my uh, part <laughs> in this conversation, and, and I, I would like to give you your take because I know you have a very passionate take on this one. So let me, let's hear yours, and then I'll comment on what what you think. Okay. Fantastic. So first of all, with the the the, the first article. Um, so overall, I think it's a really interesting thing, right? We have talked at great length about the opportunity that brands have to step up, buy properties, buy, you know, get into the journalism game, get into the content marketing game by acquiring companies. And this is exactly it, right? So we go, hey, yeah, here's a great example. And then all of a sudden it blows up in their face um, as, as this particular thing has. Now, here's my take on this. I, maybe... Maybe there was a different way to go about the announcing of this or the, you know, outreach to other breweries or something like this. I'm not sure because, quite frankly, I'm not sure any of them would have taken kindly to this uh, at all. I do find it ironic, I will say, that in the um in the one article the 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 good beer hunting article that broke the story quote unquote of this shocking development um that they also had to disclose that the uh, good beer hunting owner and founder michael kaiser 
also serves as executive editor of the October magazine, which, of course, is owned by Condé Nast um, and, ex- and is uh, sponsored by beer companies as well. So, I mean, okay, right? So it, what's good for, good for the goose is good for the gander here. But anyway, that's for a different discussion. My real take here is with the follow-up here where all of the Harpoon and other craft breweries seem to be taking great offense at this whole thing. Um, that Anheuser-Busch is doing. And again, I'm not an inside beer guy. Maybe there's more politics here than I know about or not. But basically, if I'm Anheuser-Busch, I'm just going to say, shut up. Guess what? You're not the customer. And, and by the way, removing your reviews would prove your point. If I were to remove all of the reviews you're asking me to review because you're so shocked and dismayed that Anheuser-Busch has invested in this user-generated content site, I would be proving your point that we're not independent. The whole point of the investment is for us to stick our nose out of it, to keep ourselves out of it, and to watch customers review beer, good or bad. So taking your bad reviews out would be bad. Taking your good reviews out would be bad. So in other words, guess what, competitors? You're not the customer. And if customers start complaining, if customers, the audience starts going, hey, listen, I'm not going to review anymore there because I don't believe that it's independent or there's going to be some shenanigans going on, then that's a different problem. But for Harpoon and for other craft breweries to be yelling at them saying, oh, I'm shocked and dismayed that you've invested in this thing for user-generated content and I'm actually seeing, you know, this. I think if I'm Anheuser-Busch, I say, yes, yeah, sorry, Charlie, you could have done this. Why didn't you step up and put some money toward this? Because we're just doing it because we think it's a really great thing for users to be able to go in and and develop um, and, develop and, and review beer. And again, if if it if they don't create the trust with the customer, if the customer starts not reviewing uh, beer any longer, if it you know if they get caught putting fake reviews up, great. But when we talk about the fact that this is where the guts are, this is where having the guts to step into that the journalistic shoes, that's where it is. It's in being able to put up with the noise generated by your competitors who are going to say, ah. Oh, I'm shocked that this doesn't comply with journalistic standards, and I'm shocked that you're actually taking a stand here. How dare you do this? The how dare you is the culture shift that we have to have. We have to be able to change that if we're brands and we're actually going to take the responsibility of stepping into this journalism shoes. And if we can't take the heat for that, then we shouldn't do it. And so... I will be really interested to watch Anheuser-Busch's reaction to this. If they step away from this and go, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, we were mistaken. Oh, so, so bad. Our bad. Sorry. Apologize for this. And then leave the user-generated site, the rate beer site to die on its own accord. Well, then shame on everybody because that's, that, would have been, that would be the real shame here. So that's, that's my take. Sorry if it was a bit of a rant. No, it's, it's – I probably agree with you in the fact that I wish they would have handled it differently. I wish yeah, they would have came out and there said probably was a better way to do the they, PR. It almost the way that it was done because the you know the deal was cemented in October. They could have came right. It, it almost sounds like they were hiding it a little bit. They didn't want necessarily want to get get it out there. I would have come right out and say, yeah, we are excited. We love this community. Exactly. We want to put exactly. as many resources behind keeping exactly uh, the what the what the customer wants out there, if good or bad. Good, bad, or ugly, we want it. If they would have done that, then they're, you know, you're right, though. I think a lot of these crap brewers were still going to come out and whine about it. and But they, they could have done the same thing. Right. Anybody they, could do this. Like, who – it's almost like saying, well, you know, um, it's not fair because Amazon sells its own products as well as other people's products. That's not I – mean, nobody's complaining – 
nobody's complaining about that stuff. Right. I mean, who who's who's for well, you? They to no, say, to be clear, they are complaining about yeah. it. But Amazon saying, "Yeah, we don't care. Yeah, we don't care. <laughs> yeah, who's who's to who? I mean, it, it almost takes me back to when I spoke. This was in 2010 when I spoke at South by Southwest, and I was on a panel with journalists. And I remember the the woman, the journalist from TechCrunch, who called me the Antichrist at the time. By the way, oh dear, oh we, my gosh, oh, oh yeah, oh. that was big. Um, I was flattered. For, <laughs> that's a because that's a I big was promotion for you. Be, well, because I was talking about how how there's nothing wrong with brands wanting to be part of the conversation and becoming the media companies mm-hmm. and the informational resources in their industry if they're willing to do it the right way. And she's like, no, there 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 can't be because you have to have an independent entity. And I said, what does that mean? I said, right. is the Wall Street Journal independent? Does the New York Times not have a bias? I said, everybody has a bias. It just depends on how you perceive it to be. So, and then she didn't like that. No, of course (laughs) But we were, at the time, um, the BP oil spill had just happened, and we were... And and I was I was talking about I just said look this is bad for BP no matter what happens but what if five years ago they had invested in building a relationship with certain entities so they're yeah. not just playing um, the the PR game and and uh, and try to repair all these damaged things and, and and that's what happens that's why if you have a long term relationship with an audience um, they're more willing to forgive they're more you have a buffer zone if you will if you keep creating a really good piece of content over and over again it gives you the room to to to, to distribute a bad piece of content or have something bad happen because yep. you built that goodwill um so anyways i think you're absolutely right i think this is a a story that will go away as long as to your point if they keep uh, being authentic on the site and they keep the site's mission intact this will go away and those companies that left a want back. Yeah. And shame on them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because here's the thing. If if they if they kowtow to the to the pressure and they remove like Harpoon's reviews and all the all of the breweries who are asking for their reviews to be uh, removed, then they've then they've already lost, right? Because now what you're saying is is that if I'm a customer and I go review Harpoon beer, my review is going to get deleted, and all that's work that I went through to review was for nothing. And that's when you create the distrust with the audience. So removing the reviews does exactly what the craft breweries are complaining about, which is it shows that they're biased, that they have that they actually can't create the trust, and that they're going to have uh, a manipulative effect on it. What they should do is say, we're so sorry that you feel this way, but we're really excited about the independence here and that, and that the, our customers and the readers of this site are having a vigorous debate about beers, and that's what we want. And so we're going to be keeping out of it. And if, you know, good, bad, or ugly, the reviews come in for Anheuser-Busch beers, we're going to be using it as a means of listening and hugging our haters, as Jay may say. Yeah. And so, you know, so I just think it's a, I think it's a great platform. I think it's, an interesting experiment for them to step up and we'll see if we'll, you know, we'll see what the, I, I think this is either going to be an interesting success story uh, a year and a half or two years from now, or it's going to be a cautionary tale. You know what they should do? Anheuser-Busch should come out and say uh, to the folks at uh, Dogfish Head and Harpoon and just say, well, why, we're just trying to support this industry. Uh, come on on board. Be a part of this investment. Right. Invest we'll open too. some up right. for you. We'll open we'll, up the investment. Anybody exactly. who wants to be part Great of this. Point. That's, That's a great point. That's a great point. So there you point. go. That's free advice, Anheuser-Busch. Do that. Yes. Now you make your money back and you win the PR game. Oh, that's so good. 
That's yeah. Just there you go. We're not, yeah, was... we're not gonna we're gonna not gonna leave anybody out of this conversation that wants to be part of this and support this great industry. Fantastic idea. Yeah. Fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we should talk about a wonderful sponsor that we have here. A just a, a a somebody who's been with us for really the long run, almost since the beginning. Yeah, they were an early, early sponsor. But yeah, we lo- we love the folks that go to webinar. Uh, and Robert, uh, yes. as content marketers, you know we're a bit like triathletes, right? Heaving. Yeah, and maybe you. Just maybe you're of- like a triathlete. I think it's because we're so tired. I'm yeah. just <laughs> always tired. Um, thankfully, webinars help us as we compete for mindshare across multiple content formats. The I'm a gold medalist in the elbow bend, right? In the el- I bend my elbow drinking things, and uh, I'm a gold medalist there. But so, yeah. You are award-winning. Absolutely. Award-winning. Award-winning. Uh, but the research is clear. An effective webinar engages customers, builds thought leadership, and sells products. Uh, our friends at GoToWebinar created a wonderful ebook that shows you how to attract and engage your audience, create your webinar content, and interact authentically with customers. And you can get why webinars help marketers win. Start rocking your lead gen with webinars. And I, I think I have almost uh, some some amazing data that if you put rocking in the title of your ebook, I think you see like two times more downloads. I'm pretty sure it's something like that. So anytime you put rocking in there, I'm all for it because it's rocking. It's it's amazing. CMI.media slash PNR180. And I'm not biased about this at all, just so you know. Just because they sponsored our program right. to keep us going, it's not like it matters. Uh, CMI.media slash PNR187A. CMI.media slash PNR187A to get why webinars help marketers win from our good friends at GoToWebinar. They always put out great educational content. This is one if you are looking at webinar programs or if you need your webinar program to take sort of a bump up and you're struggling this ebook will help you so go ahead and download that when you can fantastic it's rocking rocket rocket rock rocket man i'm doing the rocket you know herbie hancock (laughs) wait that's not that's not it do that again no i'm not even going to do it again because i'm going to mess it up if i do it again i thought you were doing the r2d2 for a second i didn't think you were doing what what (laughs) it's rocket Herbie Hancock. I know that, but yeah. that's not what it sounded like. I know. Well, <laughs> in my head, it sounded that. I didn't really. Anyway, we're moving on to your favorite yes. part of the show, folks. It is our rants and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave about something that makes us feel like we understand deeply the meaning of life or something that makes us feel like we're just all confused. It's only wafer thin. Um, okay. So uh, let's see. I have this old marketing, so I'm going first. All right. And so I have two raves. Um, I guess I don't know if the first one is a rave or not, but it's uh, it, it, I'm going to make it a rave. Um, and uh, the, the so here's my two raves. The first is, um, did you have you ever read uh, any Jack Trout or uh, Al Reese books, Joe? Al Reese, yes. Okay, yes, not Jack um, Trout, but yeah. Okay, so uh, Jack Trout, um, who was r- just really so for any student of marketing. 
um, was a hugely important figure um, in the marketing world. And if you're not, if you're young or you don't know who Jack Trout is, um, I urge you to get familiar with Jack Trout. Jack Trout passed away last week. Um, and uh, interestingly, we actually heard because he authored books through the publisher that Joe and I use, McGraw-Hill, um, and they actually told us, which was, um, which was sad to hear. And then, of course, it made the news um, a day or so later. And he coined, if you use the word positioning, um, he, he's the guy who came up with it. Um, he, in the night, in the late sixties, uh, he came up with this and, and then ultimately wrote a book, uh, in the very early 1980s, 1981 to be exact, called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, um, and wrote it with his partner for many, 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 many years, Al Rees, who's still alive and doing well and has a consulting firm in Atlanta and all of that. And, um, the, what we're going to link to in the show notes is actually uh, Al Rees in Ad Age wrote a wonderful sort of tribute to uh, Jack Trout um, and, uh, uh, and, and talks about positioning and all of that in Ad Age. So we'll link to that. But um, just from a personal standpoint, I want to just tell you know how, how much his material and content meant to me as I was really just studying marketing and really becoming – whatever it is I am today in the, in the marketing world. And so I urge you, um, it's a good time to actually just, you know, rethink and relearn some of the stuff, um, from our, from the folks who come before us. I mean, some, just something very interesting here, positioning the battle for your mind. Um, it talks about how, uh, the, 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 the approach of positioning your brand. Um, and as I love this quote from Jack Trout, where he says the the approach of positioning is not to create something new and different, but to manipulate what's already up there in you in the mind and retie the connections that already exist. Basically, retying the connections that your customers have about a concept and associating it with yours. And he goes through the whole thing about brand name and being first and being new and inventing new categories and and all of those things. And it's just a great book. Um, as a business book, it's one of the most important business books I think that have been written in the last 50 years. Um, it's m sold more than 2 million copies um, uh, of the book. And if you're familiar with business books, you know what an important thing that is. So anyway, so that's just my, my quick uh, homage, if you will, to uh, Jack Trout, who was a very important person in our business. Um, secondly, um, I wanted to uh, tie in something that just sort of fed into that, but it's a blog post that actually appeared uh, on the Content Marketing Institute website um, this week. And I just think it's an amazing, wonderful article, and I just had to give it a huge shout out. So Jonathan Crossfield, who, of course, is a friend and family of this show, and just, you know, he's the big bear. He's uh, just, every time I think of Jonathan, he's just like this big, giant Australian bear. Um, he, he wrote an article. <laughs> he, I think that. he would like, I think he would like that analogy. I think, I think he'd like that. Um, uh, he's just like, he's got, he's got that just, he's such a big, he's like, anyway, um, he wrote an article for CMI this week called Is Your Brand Really Who It Says It Is? And there's been lots written on the topic of authenticity and how your brand sort of complies with being uh, its authentic self. And he just wrote, I don't know, 1,500 words here that just really just gets to the heart of it. You know, he he basically, without saying this explicitly, I won't put words in his mouth, but without saying it explicitly, he talks about brand in the same way that you talk about character, right? So when we talk about character and we hear character is what you do when no one's watching, um, that's the measure of true character. And he talks about your truly authentic brand is 
would it, you know, would, how would it carry on without all of the external things of, of, of what you do? And, and, and you think about the positioning of that and, and how we're working with brand. And I just wanted to highlight one quote of this, um, because it's just, it, it was, it, it sums up the whole thing. It's toward the end of the article. And it's just a fantastic, fantastic quote. He says, you can't create authenticity just like you can't create darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. It only exists when you switch off the lamp or block out any other light source. Similarly, authenticity is only possible in the absence of the calculated or the fake. So instead of planning how to be more authentic, brands should simply switch off or block out as much of the inauthentic as possible. Ah, I just love that. I just think that is so, so fabulous and such a great insight. Um, And I wanted to shout it out and have everybody go read it because it's just fantastic. That was an excellent one. I mean, that got a lot of really positive reaction as well. Uh, oh, it's uh, just, it's just, there's a, not a lot of people yeah. talking about authenticity the way that Jonathan hit that. And that was yep. so absolutely perfect. So, yep. It's just great fantastic. Yeah. Uh, my, um, uh, my little story here, which is a rave. Uh, I think I told you last week that I was going to the, the Cincinnati Science Museum uh, to see you my did. Star Wars. Yeah. You so, did the Star Wars stuff. Took the family down to see the the Star Wars costume exhibit, uh, which, by the way, was fantastic. So I think it's a, a a rolling tour, if you will, and it's supposed to be in different cities. And right now it's in Cincinnati, and I absolutely loved it because if you are if you if you are a fan of storytelling and creative design. And it's it's wonderful because they say, uh, okay, here's how we started with the image, and George Lucas had this thought, and and Ralph McQuarrie put this down and made this, and then they do the iterations of how that story would be told, and then into the costumes, and then what what how should it feel and look, and get the materials, and it's just awesome. And they and it's from every Star Wars, from the new one all the way wow. to the original. And so it's quite in, it's it's much better than I thought it would be actually Robert. So I go through that and we're all excited and, and Adam my youngest is really excited because he's really into art and creative design right now. So he loved it. He took a picture of every exhibit which they were allowing <laughs> pictures which was even better. They were allowed to take pictures and stuff. Um we got to the end and left and then which I didn't realize I think I'd heard but um Kenner was uh, headquartered uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And this is where this was. And so we come out of the exhibit and we go into this little cove that was all about Kenner. And if, for those of you that don't know, Kenner did the original action figures and a lot of the uh, the original toys for Star Wars back in 1977-78. And it takes you through the history. And I walked in and there's like... I don't know how many there are a hundred original Star Wars figures in the box, and I'm I almost fainted because I'm a collector of Star Wars memorabilia, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me! Wow, this is unbelievable. And but they had little storyboards that to- told the story of Kenner and how they started as a toy company, because like, I don't know if you knew they did the Kenner did the Easy Bake Oven. I didn't realize that. I did so, not know that. Either. Yeah, it evolved into all these different things, and they were their low their. Uh, Mascot was this duck in the 50s, and then they they had this opportunity to license Star Wars memorabilia. So I wanted to to take this out specifically because it's so funny. You and I just talked about this because this part is in our book, Killing Marketing. So it talks about how did Kenner win the Star Wars license. And I just want to read this one part because I think it's awesome. So I took a picture of it, and it says, 
1976, George Lucas and 20th Century Fox began to market Star Wars. They strategized a full-scale licensing project that would flood the market with t-shirts, posters, lunchboxes, and toys covered in the movie's characters and vehicles. However, in the late 1970s, merchandising rights were considered essentially worthless by film studios, and Fox was happy to concede the rights to Lucas for a small reduction in his pay. Side note, (laughs) that's what we covered in uh, part in the book where uh, 20th Century Fox was like, oh, if we can get out of... Uh, given Lucas some extra money, we'll just give him more of the merchandising rights, and Lucas was wow. smart enough to take those. So anyways, go back to the, the board here. Lucas and Fox offered the license to large toy companies from Mattel to the Mego Corporation, but each turned them down. Most major toy companies were underwhelmed by the movie's science fiction genre, and space toys had declined in popularity since the Apollo 13 near disaster. This combined with the major toy company's desire to acquire multi-season TV licenses rather than a single theatrical release meant that a licensee could not be found initially. A month before the movie's release in April 77, Kenner took a chance signing the license agreement to make Star Wars toys from 1977 to 1985 to cover, obviously, all three of the movies. Kenner's president at the time, Bernie Loomis, believed that the company could create a small selection of games and puzzles, but assumed that it would be a short-lived product line. Later, Loomis called the movie Toyatic. Anything in the movie could be turned into a toy. (laughs) Kenner had accidentally (laughs) unearthed a hidden gold mine. And actually, if you remember, they sent out the early action figures couldn't be ready in time, so they sent out a kit that said, here is basically a set on a box. And they had that box here at the exhibit that people received and said, here's your box of the initial action figures that had Luke Skywalker and Ben Kenobi, but it was empty, and you ended up getting the action figures like six months later because they didn't have them ready. Uh, The reason why I wanted to talk about this and how it's related to content marketing is you and I talk in the book about rethinking content and the business model behind it. And that's where we think there's an opportunity. Like George Lucas said, well, maybe there are uh, more valuable ways or different ways that we can make money off of this. And he, Lucas saw the license, the licensing as a better opportunity for him to profit than just making money off of being the creator and the director. And then so fast forward to and these these stats are from right after the Force Awakens movie, or maybe I can't remember if it's before or after, but up to that movie, there were five billion dollars in ticket sales <laughs> for Star Wars movie right. in ticket sales. So five yes. billion in yeah. ticket sales and merchandising revenue was twelve billion. Yeah, exactly. So and I know see. different margins and whatnot, <laughs> but uh, that's why Lucas is a very very um, rich person. That's right. Uh, indeed. So I just thought that that was interesting. I got to see it firsthand. And just hopefully we can all think a little bit differently about when we have a story to tell. And maybe there's different value than what we always think there is. And if we just need to, to rethink it or look at it at a different angle. Did he? Do help, you happen so. to know, and I don't know the answer to this, so I'm, I'm really asking. Do you know if he, if Luke, when they bought uh, the Star Wars franchise, did they buy the merchandising rights? Did Disney buy the merchandising rights as well? Uh, Disney, to my knowledge, yeah, to, to my knowledge, Disney has the <clears throat> merchandising rights. But what was interesting, because we were trying to figure out about the, the traveling tour, the costume tour, um, Lucas has a foundation 
that has the rights to the costumes and things and take them around. It's a nonprofit organization. Okay. So there's been some split. I don't know exactly what rights are split, but some of those rights go to Lucas's foundation, but the majority of those licensing rights go to go to Disney. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. And is that for all the movies now or just from the new ones forward? I don't know. That's a really good question. Yeah, because he only sold it. He sold it. At a, he sold it for four billion dollars. He could have asked for five times that much, and right. he just didn't. Um, because I think he wanted it in good hands with Disney and thought that they would would treat the franchise well, which I think they have. Um, so it's yeah. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. I'm writing it down. So maybe somebody knows. Hashtag yeah. this old marketing. There you what go. What are the? How many of the rights went? Did did uh, did Disney inherit all the rights going back to 1977? Somebody, Maybe somebody industrious will look that up for somebody us. Somebody has that. Yeah, good. Why do I? I don't, I don't have to look it up. We have an awesome. Right. We have an community. awesome audience look that it up. does that. <laughs> totally fact check us. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so we have a cool this old marketing, and I it was it's one that I as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I can't believe we haven't covered this before. Because I read it all the time. Um, and, and and so I, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is a fantastic example. We should be covering this. And so um, for those of you who have never read the McKinsey Quarterly, um, it's great. Um, if it's, I mean, <laughs> assuming you're into like business and economic trends and those kinds of things that are targeted toward the senior management of, of, of businesses, it's really great. If you're not into that, it would be horrible. So don't read it. Um, <laughs> So, but I was stumbled upon the, um, and then what we'll link to in the show notes, of course, is the about the quarterly and, and, and they do a really nice job here of telling the whole story of the McKinsey quarterly, um, which has been, and I didn't even realize this in publication since 1964. Um, the publications is when it started and it continues today. Um, it's available obviously now in digital as well as print um, for the McKinsey clients. Um, and of course, they get early access if you're a McKinsey client. So as I say, 50 years uh, they've had of impact in the 1960s. They published the first one in 1964 and it was primarily at that time, just a vehicle for reprints uh, of management articles that some of the McKinsey consultants had read or, or, excuse me, had written for other publications. So they would reprint basically anything that other McKinsey consultants had written for other publications, and they sort of stacked them together and sent it out. Like, here's all the stuff our consultants have been, uh, have been writing here. Um, then um, – in 1966, the year I was born, uh, by the way, um, just two years after the quarterly got started, the managing director for McKinsey, his name was Marvin Bauer. He wrote um, a, a, The Will to Manage, um, and it was a book. It was a, it's a good book, by the way, um, and it was you know, really talking about all the stuff that Drucker was talking about and basically all of the management issues of, of large enterprises. So this is 1966, um, and they started putting in chapters of his book into the quarterly. Um, and he did a unique chapter within, you know, something that didn't appear in the book, but he did sort of updating it in the quarterly uh, as well. Um, Drucker, Peter Drucker, has contributed articles to the McKinsey Quarterly. He did his 1967 article, The Manage, Manager and the Moron. It's a great article, by the If you've never read The Manager and the Moron, it's just a, such a quintessentially Drucker article that you, you got to go read that. 
Then they through the seventies, um, they started expanding it, um, and they started really focusing on different kinds of management, from strategy to organizational effectiveness, those kinds of things. Into the eighties, they started to expand even further and make it bigger and thicker. Um, it all the way through the nineties, um, into the two thousands, where they went digital. Um, they started introducing new kinds of things around verticals, around e-commerce, and and, and those kinds of things, and even today. Um, as they say in 2014, the quarterly celebrated its 50th anniversary um, with a completely special year-long publishing effort focused on the future of management. Um, and I just have to say that I've been reading the quarterly since, oh, I don't know, probably 10 years now. Um, and it's just a, a fantastic publication. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where McKinsey gets a, a you know, the, the sort of has a brand and has a bit of a uh, a reputation for being very ivory tower and esoteric. And, you know, there's a whole thing about McKinsey consultants and all that kind of stuff. And I want to say, and this is, this is one man's opinion here, which is over the last, I would say five or six years, McKinsey has really come down out of that and really started to provide some great pragmatic advice. I really enjoy now, where it was very aspirational for me in the early days, it's now I see the advice and the 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 thought leadership there being very pragmatic. So, anyway, hats off to them um, for publishing it for as long as they have, and um, just a great example of uh, of something that has helped them drive, I'm sure, business for their for their consultancy and help sort of establish them as one of the leading thought leaders in business management in the world. So, and a great example of this old marketing. Yeah, like you, I had no idea it was over 50 years old. Yeah, it's I didn't just, either. It's amazing how many examples we're finding that uh, have been around for a long time. This is not yeah. a new thing, this content Absolutely. marketing thing. Yeah, so, this whole thing called this whole thing, thing, stepping up into the responsibility of publishing thought yeah. leader, actually leading some thought. Yeah. Leading thought. Yes, it's, leading thought is much better than, well, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> All right. That's it. Where are you going this week? Good job. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, we're we're actually recording this a little bit early and, and some yeah. other ones as well because uh, we're taking a little vacation at the end of this week. Vacation. Uh, so taking a wonderful family vacation, going completely offline. Very much looking forward to it. There Just it is. Spending time with uh, my wife and the boys. So really really um excited about some of the things we're going to do so that's oh that's fabulous wonderful and you are off to europe i am literally in a few hours off to uh london town uh where i'll be spending the good part of the week working with a client there on their content marketing strategy and operation and differentiation um i'll be taking a quick hiatus to dublin spending next weekend in dublin working with a client but then taking in the sights and sounds of dublin ireland um and then Flying to Toronto uh, earlier the week of the 18th, um, so uh, and doing a keynote presentation there um, for a uh, for a client's private uh, conference there. So I'm on the road for the next two weeks. Um, so it'll be it'll be recording. This will be fun. It should be it should be interesting as we keep this old marketing up to date. Well, go find some older examples in Europe because yeah, exactly. uh, Lord knows that I'm not finding any. So we need you. <laughs> It's everything is all the pressures on you to find new this old marketing. It's, it's, uh, that, what else is new? Right? <laughs> what the hell else yeah, is new? Exactly. That's right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off, and thank you to Go to Webinar and Video Blocks for being our wonderful sponsors for this episode. And if you liked it, this episode number one hundred and eighty-seven 
won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? And if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. And when you leave us a review, and we love those kind reviews, folks, we really do. If you leave us a review, let us know, won't you? Hashtag us up at This Old Marketing on the Twitter. We want to thank you personally for all of that. That's how much we appreciate you as a subscriber to this little podcast. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. You know them. We love them. We need them. Hashtag us up at This Old Marketing on Twitter or send us an email at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes as we publish on Monday night. And of course, in the show post in all its technicolor glory at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.